More biology. Our biology says you have choice. So even though I I firmly believe there is no such thing as free will, I live my life as if I have total responsibility for all my actions. And I believe that people can change and should change. And I try to figure out what are the words and the incentives that I can help inform other people so that they decide to change, so that their lack of free will directs them in, in a way that betters their life. R-B-N. Three, two, one, here we go from the Play Normal Esports studio. This is PodBN. I am Tyson talking today with Charlie Johnson, a friend of mine who is moving out of town. We always have really interesting conversations, and so I wanted to take this last day he has here in Bloomington Normal to pick his brain a little bit on these topics he thinks about and also to uh, hear what he likes about Bloomington Normal. So before I talk to Charlie, just want to thank our sponsor, Little Beaver Brewery. Uh, Charlie's actually moving to Wisconsin where there's going to be a lot of craft beer available, but uh, hopefully uh, before you left, did you, did you get a chance to uh, sample any of the local craft beers around here? Of course. Great. So um, there's uh, the distinguishing feature of Little Beaver Brewery, I would say, is their creative names. The owner's daughter names a lot of them. So you have Strawberry, Wainbows, Ridiculousness, Citrus, Space Crystals, and things like that. You never know what you're going to get when you go over to Little Beaver Brewery. Go check them out. And with that, uh, we'll... Uh, Welcome, Charlie. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, no problem, Tyson. I really uh, appreciate you having me. Yeah. I always enjoy our lunches. It's a, a lot of fun, and um, we'll, we'll just uh, we'll see how things go here, mm-hmm. see if we can, we can recurate what we do there. <laughs> it's, uh, it's always more fun In to be taking a... more measured fashion, I Yeah. Hope, <laughs> <laughs> it's more fun to be taking a break from work, but we'll, we'll do it here, too. Um, so... I uh, first heard, I was first worked with you like just as an actuary, mm-hmm. and so uh, I think both of us just kind of had our actuary hats on, mm-hmm. and we're, we're talking work, talking math and modeling and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then I saw you do a TED Talk at the TED Normal event on managing change, um, and that... Uh, that and I was like, huh, that, that guy's got a, he, he's thinking about a little bit more than math. Um, <laughs> So what, at first I was just curious, What I don't think I ever asked you, what led you to want to do that event there? Uh, at uh, the TED Talk? At TED Talk, yeah. So I, I've been giving speeches since I was in college, and I was part of a Toastmasters group. And the head of the speaker committee um, for that TED Talk event was one of my Toastmasters club members. And she'd heard me compete um, before in public speaking. And so she reached out and asked me if I would put together a speech and speak to get the, the TED Talk. So I, I didn't actually have a topic planned or anything like that. Uh, give you a little background for, for the TED Talk topic. Um, when I was 16, I got pulled out of high school and sent to a wilderness rehabilitation center in West Virginia. And it's, uh, I went from a pretty unhappy, unmotivated person. Um, and I wouldn't say like I came out at, you know, the, the other side of this, this rehab program as someone who's like a you know, just a really, you know, I'm this amazing person, but it taught me how, you know, that slow, meticulous process um, that takes just tons of energy and effort of, of changing that I think a lot of people struggle with. But, um, you know, I, I hope that I could give some tools for people to help manage a lot of the change that they deal with uh, in their lives. Yeah. And so uh, run, run me through those real quick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, some of the ways that people manage change. Um, yeah. So uh, the first one is that... Uh, Often people are in denial of change. And so, 
you know, accepting the fact that we're all changing all the time. It, it's, you know, well, I'm sure we'll talk about at least a little bit, you know, we get into some philosophy here, but the very nature of space and time is predicated on change. If, if things weren't changing, time wouldn't be going by. And um, so you have to accept that you're changing. That's, you know, step one. And so the next one is, like, how do you evaluate if the change you're going through is good or bad, you know, um, and, and that takes a lot of self-reflection and knowing what you want, uh, you know, am I changing for something that's going to make me happier in the future? And then the third thing is, you know, just that difficult process of like, okay, I want to change. Maybe the thing I want will take me five years to get to, um, you know, how do I break that down into chunks as small as a day? Because, you know, people want to, like, I'm in three months, I'm going to have this. But really, when you think about change, especially change in your life, you have to think about, like, what am I going to do today? And, you know, sometimes it can be aspirational. Like, I'm going to work out every day for two hours a day this whole week. And so, you, you know, you try for a day, and then the next day you miss. And so a lot of it's just, you know, being okay with failing and not giving up. That, that's probably, if you can, if, you, if there's one thing you get, it's just, it's okay to fail. Just try again the next day, and and just take change one day at a time, and that accum not you know not focusing on it accumulates just the same as focusing on it does. Yeah, that's why I hear resolutions fail a lot, like uh, New Year's or otherwise, when people just decide like, well, today's the day I'm going to completely change my my diet or my exercise or my reading habits, and they're they're just focused on the end state that's going to take years to get to. You got to break that down into your your just daily. Like today, I'm going to do ten push-ups. Mm-hmm. That's my goal, and I'm going to accomplish that. And then once that's my baseline, like build off that, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. Yeah. It's, I think the end of the speech, I say, you know, just pick one habit you want to stop or one that you want to start. Because you, you know, just one. Yeah. You, you know, you're like, I'm going to be healthy, so I'm going to change what I eat and how often I work out, and you know, just pick one aspect of your day and and work on it until it's a habit, and you don't have to try. Yeah. I found that. In my life, it's almost—it's like self-control is a finite resource. If I'm exu- if I'm ex- exerting it on one thing, like it, uh, I I can't do. I can do it like one or two things in my life, maybe. But if I'm trying to like go to sleep earlier and exercise more and eat better all at the same time, it's like I just run out and all of them fail. You mm-hmm. have to have that focused approach on like this is my this is my goal at this time. Do mm-hmm. one thing at a time. Focus on it. Build up that like endurance to to your change and then, you know, move forward. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I've, I've actually been surprised by, uh, change in my life. Uh, especially like I, I find change exciting. Usually I find when something's different, it's like, it's interesting. I'm curious. I want to learn more about it. And I just kind of like run at it. And that's gotten me into trouble. Actually got me into trouble recently at work. Cause there was some, some big announcement coming up that we were going to treat something differently and I'm just like amped for it, so I go and announce it to my team, and like everything just crashes downhill. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, what does this mean? Are we going to lose our jobs? Is like, you know, I all these things I've learned are they going to be irrelevant? And I'm like, whoa, whoa, hey, 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 like, it's change. It's interesting. It's something different. It's exciting. Most people, it's that's not going to be their reaction to it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, cool. Well, I'm I'm glad that. Uh, I'm glad that you did that. So we got a chance to connect because it just sort of went in all kinds of different directions when we started talking about stuff. Yeah. So one of the things you've taught me a lot about is CBD mm-hmm. and um, and 
somewhat related topic of marijuana legalization. Mm -hmm. So uh, I've actually, now that you've taught me those initials and uh, what they mean, (laughs) I start seeing them around more. Like I've seen at the... One of the family videos in town, the one that's out on Empire, mm-hmm. got a big sign that they sell CBD there, which seems like a, um, it, you know, you might think that it's something to do with renting videos then, but it's not. So uh, for people uh, who have not heard of this or have heard a little bit about it, how about you um, let us know what it is? Um, so first, I'll comment on the the, the uh, family video. That turns into, a, there, I think the Panic Graph wrote an article about how this turned into a major revenue source for really? family video. Well, um, so... So is, see, it just the, is it just that store, or is it all of them that are doing it? Do all know? the family videos? All I'm the family. Sure. Oh, okay. But that particular I think one of them shut down, so probably not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so CBD is, it's a bit of an encompassing term. Um, it's describing cannabidol. So there are two what we classify as subcompounds that are um, active ingredients in marijuana, um, and those are tetrahydrocannabinoids (THC) and cannabidol (CBD). Okay. But in reality, CBD and THC each have a bunch of subchemicals that are slightly different variants. Um, you know, they they some of them have the same macro effects, but some have very specific effects on the body. Um, so so the, the one thing I, that's very important when you talk about CBD and THC is that the research and understanding of how it interacts with our body is still really small. Um, uh, there are a few things that CBD is being marketed to treat. Um, I can, I'll, I'll tell you in a minute about two clinical studies that I think are really powerful. But some of the anecdotal things that are um, used to market CBD and its benefits are it's, it tends to be uh, create lower levels of anxiety um, and this is without THC. Generally when you think of marijuana you think of being high and kind of a, a, an elated feeling. CBD is does not have that. That's all incorporated in THC. So CBD is a bit of a relaxant um, you know it's being marketed as a pain treatment. In fact when I drive into Chicago there's a sign that says you know um, marijuana or opioids like you decide and, and I don't think that's I think it's a bit of a misnomer so I'll give you an example I have a cousin and he's had had long-term pain and he had problems using painkillers so he went to a pain clinic and the first thing the pain clinic does is they send you to a psychologist because a lot of dealing with pain and discomfort is psychological you know um, and we have a mental dependency on painkillers sometimes when we use them partially for the pain relief and partially because it makes us feel better. So what CBD has been described as um, from people who have had kind of long-term opioid problems is that it teach, it, it makes you feel okay with the pain. It doesn't necessarily leave it like painkillers do. So, for example, if you had surgery, I would not recommend you use CBD to relieve tooth pain. <laughs> However, if you had shoulder or back surgery and there's nothing that you can really do to relieve your pain, CBD can be used in conjunction with opioids to reduce um, how addictive and how much you need to use with them, um, and as well as helping relieve some of the tension and anxiety of having uh, you know, a, a constant state of pain. So that's, that's kind of the pain aspect to it. Um, the endocannabinoid system is also very interesting. It's a system within our body that we've only discovered in the last couple of years. And um, there are some interesting things with uh, like lotion where it helps alleviate 
symptoms on the skin uh, for various things like eczema or psoriasis um, or even helps with aging. Um, and again, these are just anecdotal that have been, uh, you know, people who have used it have said they found these benefits. There aren't good clinical trials for that yet. Is that because of stigma with marijuana? Like they're just, or they haven't been able to do research on it? Yeah, so um, most of it is the legal problems. So if I wanted to grind down maple leaves and extract something from it and say, hey, this is a drug I'd like to test out, I could, you know, just file, you know, here's a drug, I'd like to test it, you know, see is it safe for humans, okay, it doesn't hurt them. Let me go, you know, try a clinical trial to see if people who have pain are relieved. The problem is because CBD was historically classified as part of marijuana and was um, uh, a drug that was banned on a federal level, it was federally illegal to do any research on it. There are a few special circumstances where people had gotten licensing in the past, and um, there's been a lot of research. There are same restrictions in Europe. Um, the most interesting uh, is Israel. So Israel is a relatively new country on a global scale. And so they have chosen a few areas, developing industries, to focus um, their infrastructure and development and technology. And one of them has been in the marijuana field space. So not only do they have some of the most sophisticated production facilities in the world, they also have some of the most developed research facilities in the world. And so um, the studies that I've seen that have produced you know, clinically powerful results have been almost all in Israel with a couple in Canada. Um, the most famous story for CBD is probably uh, Charlotte. So uh, Charlotte was a, I believe she was five years old at the time, and she had had chronic seizures her entire life. And her parents, after exhausting a long list of seizure medication, uh, you know, they'd find some that were effective, but were the, the side effects are, are detrimental to a child. I mean, they're non-responsive, they're in pain, they slowly degrade over time, and, you know, that she'd still have seizures. So the parents, uh, you know, in a desperate, you know, attempt to find something that would relieve these really, you know, powerful seizures for their daughter, you know, had someone said, you should try marijuana oil. Well, it turns out CBD is an extremely effective anti-seizure medication for a, a, a major cause for seizures. I, I believe it's epileptic seizures, but also a few other ones. And so um, the first drug in the United States to have CBD legally approved in it is an anti-seizure medication. Um, so I think GWP is their stock ticker. Um, but it's a, a company that combines CBD with existing seizure treatments to help uh, alleviate um, seizures in a more effective way. It reduces side effects of existing seizure medications, and it's surprisingly effective in many cases, especially those with children where you know, you want to do something that doesn't have a lot of side effects or long-term damage. Hmm. And CBD in isolation without THC still works. Yeah. So there's an oil form, and then is there like a pill form too that you ingest? Is that There's a lot of forms a lot of CBD. Forms. Okay. Yeah, so you can get CBD flowers now. Oh. So uh, in 2011... Uh, not 2011, sorry, um, the 2018 Farm Bill, they um, passed a law that said if the THC content is below 3%, then it is considered hemp and not marijuana. So cannabis is kind of the encompassing one. Marijuana is THC active. Hemp is just stuff, you know, we used to grow it for rope and a lot of other things. It, it doesn't have very much psychoactive uh, okay. content to it. So there, there's, there's like 100 strains of, of cannabis. Oh, got you. So I didn't realize that 
hemp and marijuana were different strains of cannabis. Is that yeah. right? Okay. The so classifications, hemp, I would call classifications them. Classifications. Okay. So you um, you can grow hemp. It's a plant. Now, federally. Okay. federally. So, so it was can. legal in some states, but as of 2018, this growing season, now there's been some problems with, and we'll talk about this when we talk about marijuana, marijuana legalization. Mm-hmm. Saying something's legal does not mean that you can just do whatever you want. Um, the government still wants to regulate things. Um, and so I, we'll really get into this. At that yeah, point. sure. But, we'll put but, a pin in that. But they, the federal government said it's legal to grow now. So you can now grow plants that have CBD in them as long as the THC content is below some amount. Okay. Gotcha. And then you you extract that somehow? So there's flowers. Um, there's a refining process. The best refining process is a cold carbon dioxide. It's where you... I believe it's reduced the pressure of carbon di- or increase the pressure of carbon dioxide until it's liquefied, and then you make it really cold, and then you run that cold fluid through CB- the, the marijuana plant and extract CBD from it. Okay. Um, so it's a really expensive and energy inefficient process because you have to pressurize and cool. So cooling is much more takes a lot more energy than heating something up. And then you have to pressurize it, um, which is also takes a lot of energy. Huh. So you have to have this high-pressure, cold CO2 liquid in order to have cold extraction of CBD. So you get a very pure form without a lot of the other chemicals that come in the plant or in, in marijuana. Yeah. Okay. And so back to your original question, which yeah. is you can get it in oils, which you can eat. You can get it in lotions, which you rub on your skin. Those don't go to your bloodstream. So if you have, like, localized pain or you're trying to alleviate some skin thing, you can rub lotion on it. Um, they have lip balms, they have uh, oils that you can smoke, they have flowers that you can smoke in a traditional sense, um, Yeah, the, the pills that you can take that are like vitamins, uh, it's a pretty comprehensive suite of products. Okay. And the different application methods would, uh, the idea would be effective at addressing different types of maladies or? Some of it, and a lot of it's just preference for how people want to okay. use it. That makes sense, yeah. All right, so... Then, is this? Would you like characterize it as like a supplement? Like it would be in the same same camp as like a vitamin or like a holistic treatment at this point? Or does there seem to be a bit more scientific rigor than that? Uh, both. So, so one is we clinically know that it alleviates seizures. Okay. Um, well, yeah, you mentioned it's in the medicine. Yeah. So. so there's a lot of, uh, you know, you're right. It is it is like a vitamin. It makes you feel better. I'll put it another way. If you're uh, iron deficient, you don't have enough hemoglobin. When you take an iron supplement, you feel a lot better, don't you? Mm-hmm. But you wouldn't say, you know, iron's a drug yeah. that you're using. Yeah, um, vitamin D or the... Yeah, you yeah. know, so, yeah. you know, if you're deficient in something, or uh, the way they describe CBD, and again, I don't know how clinical this is, is that it helps restore a balance in your body. Now, for me, that's generally not how drugs work. They, You know, you have uptakes or inhibitors. Where they either enhance something that's existing, replace something that's there, um, but it... CBD is described as not working quite like that. Um, so again, the endocannabinoid, endocannabinoid system is a relatively new system in the body that we don't know a lot about. Mm-hmm. So if you have anyone that comes in here that's not a medical doctor that runs a lab that says that, oh, CBD works this way, I, frankly, I'd, I'd be a little hesitant to believe them. Okay. The one really, really powerful clinical trial that I've seen um, comes out of Israel, and it's treating um, severe autism. So one of the concerns with severe autism is that um, children are with severe autism don't speak, they don't articulate, and they tend to be 
stronger than usual and um, compulsive, physically compulsive. You know, punch holes in walls, tear doors off, have emotional, just become emotionally overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. And so they are generally institutionalized. And when they're institutionalized, they're given really powerful anti-psychotic, um, um, just muscle relaxing men. So, I mean, it's almost, it's, it's, I mean, it's sad for parents to be yeah. in either state, one where you can't control or be around your child because of their violent tendencies, not bursts, or that they almost seem vegetative and non-responsive. And so um, they, they did a trial where they took um, 1,000 milligrams. That's a lot. To put it in perspective, you can buy a 200-milligram bottle for like 60 bucks. And, or, or, yeah, like 60 bucks. So like 1,000 milligrams a day. Okay. Really high dosage CBD they were giving to autism people. And so CBD is also interesting where it's not something that reacts in your body right away. So, for example, if you're applying lotion, um, you're probably not going to feel anything the first day. But it builds up in the system. And so um, using it repeatedly repeatedly over a longer period of time creates more effective results than just using it on a one-time basis. So I started giving these really severely autistic people high CBD dosages. And after a month, I mean, their violent tendencies went away. Like, hmm went away. There were so, I mean, the change in behavior was so strong that parents took their children home for the first time. I mean, violent institutionalized autism got to go home and be with their parents. And one of the most powerful stories is uh, this woman, her son, 16, he's never spoken in his entire life. And she's cooking him dinner. And, you know, for a mother to a child, right, you just, you just talk to them. You just you yeah. try to make it as normal as possible. So she's sitting there, and she turns to her son, and she says, uh, you know, what do you want for dinner? And he doesn't look at her, but he just says, you know, an egg. And for her, that's the first time first she's time ever heard her son speak. Wow. And it's not just like I, I heard my son's voice. I mean, she spent 16 years talking to him, never knowing whether it got through. Never knowing if he understood English, if she, if he understood what she was saying, and the first, it was the first time it kind of confirmed to her that 16 years of effort and care did return something in her son. It was worthwhile, even though she never knew it. It was kind of a way to restore her faith that she's she was doing the right thing. Um, and so, I think CBD has enormous pharmaceutical potential. Um, but dosing and trials are going to take a long time. I, yeah. I think in 10 years we'll see CBD used in conjunction with many things like painkillers and anti-seizure medication and anti-psychotics um, and anti-anxiety medication. Um, I think as a standalone, I'm not quite as confident that it, it will be powerful, um, but it, it seems to work in combination with our existing treatments pretty well. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I mean, you could think it would be somewhat logical if you can see anecdotal results of it improving anxiety and then if like the reason for someone with autism reason for their outbursts is unknown right because they can't communicate what's going on but it would stand to reason that they also find their situation unpalatable in various (laughs) ways and anxiety inducing right and when you don't know how to express it you know uh lashing out you know, aggressively would make sense. And then, um, yeah, a lot of times 
anxiety just makes any working through any sort of problem worse, mm. no matter what it is. And so if you can try to help with that, then it would help you work on other things that you need to do. Uh, not, I mean, I have no medical way of working through that, but if that, it doesn't, it makes a sort of sense, I guess, in a way. So it's interesting. So there's, there are a lot of trials of this going on now nationally, people trying to figure out. Like I said, it was just federally legalized just in the last, last farm bill. The last farm bill, yeah. So you um, don't, you no longer need special permission yeah. to, okay. to do tests on CBD alone. Yeah. Um, Canada has been a little more uh, far in front of it. So Charlotte, the story I told you, mm-hmm. One of the companies, CBD companies, is called Charlotte's Web, and they're operated out of Canada. And that has really pushed some of the, the legislation there. So Canada has had, um, you know, a lot more of those legal barriers removed a few years earlier than we did. So they have a few more clinical trials. Europe is the same way. They're, they're really moving into the space. But I think it will take a couple years before you get proper funding and quality double-blind um, medical results yeah. uh, out there. Um, is, is there any indication if somebody does go to family video or somewhere else and picks some up and, and takes some, um, there's like, because it's associated with marijuana, I'm sure there'll be people think like, oh, is this addictive? Is it, mm-hmm. is it um, like have hallucinogenic properties? Can you overdose on this? Um, is there any indication that there's like risk associated with giving it a shot? Yeah, so um, the FDA has been pretty adamant that they that CBD is not legal to consume. It is not legal to consume it. You can produce it. You can own it. Um, you know, lotions are all right because, I mean, they're not cosmetic. You know, it's more like, um, yeah, I mean, you can rub stuff on your skin. That's fine. Yeah. Um, and one of the major reasons, and this this will, just when we talk about marijuana legalization yeah. and all that. It'll probably is, work its way into it. So yeah, is regulation. Um you know, how do you, and, and I think this goes to a larger conversation about, you know, drugs and whether they should be illegal or not. And one of the big arguments for why they should be legal is you can regulate them, right? Yeah, if you want to be a drug addict, that's fine. Buy drugs that are clean, use dosages that are appropriate, um, do it in a place where you have resources in case something bad happens. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one in three phone calls to our fire department is no, I mean, I don't know if that's Bloomington, but I know there are many areas, especially rural ones, where, you know, a large percentage of phone calls to fire departments are, you know, people overdosing. Yeah. So if you can reduce that by selling it in a store and having a safe place to do it, which I know they've done in places like Canada. Yeah. But the concern is, you know, regulation. How do you regulate it? And so CBD, one, because there's still a lot of outstanding questions about its long-term effects. Uh, you know, much like nicotine, you could say, oh, look, you know, you use nicotine. It enhances, it stimulates your memories better. Yeah. You're more active. You're more alert. Well, yeah, well, if you smoke cigarettes for 30 years, turns out you have lung cancer. It's <laughs> one of the, the leading causes of death. So, uh, you know, I think that the FDA is rightly concerned. Um, we don't know some things. There are definitely risks out there. Um, but, you know, we do know that it, you can't overdose on it. Um, another concern is that the companies producing it don't have regulations on quality control. So uh, it, it's you probably... You get a bad batch of it. Yeah, so it's probably wise to do some research about what brands you're buying. Some are more reputable. As I mentioned, Charlotte's Web is one of the very reputable brands. They've been around for a long time okay. producing, refining, and making sure that they have quality products. Um, but yeah, those are definitely valid concerns that consumers should have. Yeah, good to know. Yeah, I'm watching the original series of The Twilight Zone right now on Netflix, 
and everyone's smoking all the time. Like there's, <laughs> <laughs> there's a guy who, uh, you know, he's scared of something, and he runs into, like, a psychiatrist's office, and the, the guy, like, stops him at the door. He's like, hey, hey, well, slow down. Here, have a cigarette. You know, calm down. <laughs> yeah, 50s were a different place. Yeah. <laughs> Every time you uh, went to the doctor's office, they give you a smoke to calm you down. Um, we know better now. But, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, interesting, interesting. Well, yeah, uh, so we've been kind of dancing around marijuana as mm-hmm. well, too. Uh, you know, related topic. But in a way, I think it's probably a shame that it is so related because it probably makes people more concerned about um, – CBD than they would need to be. It's mm-hmm. a it's a you know a supplement and a a, a potential thing you could consume or apply in mm-hmm. order to make yourself feel better. Um, you know, there's there's medicinal teas that they have mm-hmm. and cultures are like that too. But people don't get all anxious about them, right? Yeah. Um, but this plant is really. <laughs> the cannabis plant has really been uh, had a lot of you know, a tumultuous to, lifetime to do over about the last it. Yeah, years. yeah. So I've heard stories about the history of why it became illegal. Um, but I'm I'm curious of like what your understanding is of the of the history there and the motivations or why did this like why is marijuana illegal but tobacco and alcohol are not essentially like why this why why this guy. Do you, have you looked into the history? Uh, I've the, looked in a bit. Uh, you know, there are some pretty interesting stories about um, competing industries, like competing with cotton or rope production. Uh, uh, um, you I know, or that. ones where you know the United States military said that, oh no, this is this creates people who are subordinate and don't listen. Um, you know, that sounds like alcohol to me. Uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you know, I I think that it's there's definitely you might actually be able to speak more to the history of it. Uh, there are definitely reasons that are not in line with its dangers. Um, yeah. I, I think one of them was it was propagated as uh, part of the, the war on drugs. Um, yeah. And uh, a lot of it, and especially in America, was, you know, it's used by uh, people who aren't, you know, Americans drink alcohol and foreigners come in and they, yes. they smoke these drugs. And, <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think it... There's not really one thing, but just a, a lot of reasons why it, historically it was kind of shunned and, and seen as this really bad, dangerous drug. Yeah, I've seen, I've heard some of those too. I, I'm, I'm torn between things that logically make sense to me and things that seem conspiratorial. And mm-hmm. so it's, I guess it's hard to peg down just like the one thing. Mm-hmm. I have heard laid out to me pretty convincingly, like the history of drug prohibitions is really, fo- in America, it tends to be focused on what immigrant groups are coming in, mm-hmm. and what concerns they have. So if there's, when there was a lot of people f- coming from China and, and Asia, then uh, opioids became really like the hot ones to, mm-hmm. to get rid of. Um, that alcohol prohibition was aimed at uh, Catholics and, um, and Germans and Irish immigrants to try to like, you know, try to break apart their culture and to um, just make it clear that they're not welcome. Mm-hmm. Uh, same way with marijuana and, and people from Mexico and other places in South America where it's more common. Um, it makes sense to me, but again, like I said, whenever I hear something like that, where it's where it's like a you know social justice warrior conspiracy, it's all about you know hating. Uh, immigrant groups mm-hmm. get a little suspicious, but um, that hasn't been disproved <laughs> to me. Yeah. But I guess to your point, regardless of the reason and the overall motivations, whether they be corporate or racial or um, 
economic or whatever, I think most people are starting to realize now that the fear associated with marijuana is way out of line with what it actually does mm -hmm. to people. Um, so, so yeah, what's the, uh, so it looks like in Illinois, it's going to, going to be legal pretty soon. Mm -hmm. huh? Okay. Yeah. So, so uh, what does that really mean? You said a little earlier, like there's legal, but then there's like, yeah, yeah it's so legal. Yeah, marijuana legalization is interesting. So I'll, I'll start. I'm an advocate for it. Um, the health risks are far less than cigarettes. You know, it tends to not reduce lung function. Um, I mean, what we've seen so far is that vaping is more dangerous than smoking actual marijuana flowers, uh, which is really surprising. I would imagine anything that you combust to put in your lungs rather than vaporize would be worse, but... That does not appear to be the clinical evidence right now. Interesting. Um, it doesn't uh, encourage you. You know, it, it certainly you're not as good at driving, um, but you're more aware of that, and you're probably even more scared to drive, uh, <laughs> which I think is the most dangerous part of alcohol. Yes, there's alcohol addiction and you know overdosing, but um, killing other people because you're drunk, I think, is is a, a huge travesty. If you want to get drunk every day and wreck your life. Yeah, it's a huge cost to the healthcare system, but you're not going to accidentally kill a kid driving down veterans. Yeah, I've I explained it to someone recently who hadn't, um, he had never consumed alcohol or marijuana and was curious because it's a hot button issue. He's asking mm -hmm. me about what the different effects are. And, you know, I said it's hard to generalize because people are different. Mm -hmm. It depends on the amount you do. But I'd say on the whole, like, uh, alcohol makes you care less about risk makes you more risk accepting of things and alcohol and uh marijuana can can definitely make you more risk aware where mm -hmm. oh, to the level of paranoia right where yeah. you're just you'd be so worried about getting caught even if you were okay to drive you might not <laughs> want to do it because you might see police everywhere right yeah so uh it's a very actuary answer by the way yeah <laughs> I, was, I was talking to an actuary so there you go <laughs> um so yeah the um so you're not one of the people who say, like, you think that people drive just as well high as when they're not. That always seemed like kind of a stretch to me personally. I, it slowers reaction time. It's pretty straightforward. Um, you can, I mean, there are certainly arguments you can make, like you're more paranoid, so you're more attentive or mm -hmm. things like that. Um, but I, I would not think that you're better. And there are certainly effects of marijuana. And again, wide range. You know, there's been articles about, you know, what our parents did versus what is available in um, dispensaries. The potency in of it. Yeah, the potency is yeah. increased significantly. And, you know, a small amount of CBD and THC might be anxiety relieving, but a large amount by, might be very significantly anxiety inducing. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, if you are high enough, you'll just pass out. Yeah. So, yeah, there well, are definitely another, points where, you know, it's d very dangerous to drive. Yeah. Um, and then there's, I mean, there's another thing, too, the point of, like, if you if you smoke too much, you pass out, then mm -hmm. you um, you are, uh, you can't OD on it, right? Mm -hmm. So that would be, the, that's a big <laughs> distinction people have with alcohol. Alcohol and tobacco definitely kill more people than the marijuana does yeah. directly for medical reasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Back to your question, legalization. So yes, that, that's my stance. I think it should be legal. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say it's necessarily great, um, but it is significantly less uh, bad than the, our existing legal drugs. And um, I think there's a lot of economic benefit we can have by regulating it and taxing it appropriately. So legalization in Illinois, 
Um, Pritzker ran and said that he was going to legalize it. Madigan uh, said that he also was going to legalize it. So they've drafted a bill. Um, it's been introduced um, into the Illinois legislature, legislature um, and they're reviewing it for approval. So here's how I expect the legalization process to go. Um, the initial target date was 1-1-2020. That means January 1st of 2020, it will be legal for consumption and possession in Illinois. It will be legal to sell to the public. However, they will need an entire probably year for companies to apply for licensure, to get it to develop um, the stores and distribution channels, and then be be approved from the Illinois state government to sell it. Mm -hmm. So it'll be legalized 1-1-2020, but you won't be able to buy it in a dispensary till 1-1-2021. So that's pretty standard. So like I was going on my honeymoon to Maine, and we drove through Maine, and I looked it up, and I was like, oh, Maine's one of the states that's legal. And I looked up where I could buy it, and there were no dispensaries in all of Maine. No, okay. Because it had been legalized that year, but they hadn't gone through the licensure process, so there were no stores that had it available for sale. So given the way that Illinois uh, created it legally before uh, for medical use, my guess is that all existing medical dispensaries will be the first ones granted license for public um, dispensaries. Okay. And there will be probably a limit on the number of dispensaries, um, probably by county. I guess I don't know this. Is it is medical marijuana legal now? Yeah. In Illinois? Oh, okay. I didn't. I yeah, there's there's a dispensary here in Bloomington Normal. Oh, there is. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. Green. Green Top Greens. Green Top Grocery. Yeah, it's not the grocery okay. store, uh, <laughs> but there there is one inside Bloomington. Yeah. Uh, okay. And so right now, the existing uh, medical losses that you can have it in um, one per county in Illinois. Okay. Um, and so those will continue, those will probably be the first ones granted, and then, uh, you know, we'll see how it goes from there. And we'll see if that timeline is held, you know, things could get held up in the legislature for a long period of time. Sure. Uh, we don't see it legalized until, you know, a year or six months after that. Yeah, there was some sort of, like, um, there are definitely, it's definitely being more pushed by the Democrats. There have been some Republicans who expressed their support of it. Mm-hmm. Jason Barrickman locally has mm-hmm. been very vocal about his support of it. I didn't look into it, though. There was some sort of kerfuffle. Like, the first one that was introduced was, like, that it was upsetting to the other side, like, to some degree that the Republicans didn't feel like their interests had been incorporated or something like that. Um, I don't know that the details are important, but to your point, there's going to be some back and forth with regards to how this mm-hmm. goes. And um, there are some very interesting aspects that I think are, are worthwhile considering. I think people tend to gloss over some of the very serious concerns that when it comes to legalization. Mm-hmm. It's like one is, you know, you would think you legalize marijuana and the black market goes away. But but stop and think of for a minute. What is the only enforcement, One the, the major enforcement tool we have for the black market right now is that we can pick someone up with it, say, that's illegal, and you have to tell us where you got it from, mm. or we're going to charge you. And that's how they work their way up the chain of you know drug sales. So sure. if it's legalized, it is legal to own, it is legal to grow, it's legal to give away. It's not legal to sell without a license. So the only way that you can catch people in the black market once it's been legalized is in the process of transacting it. So it becomes very, very difficult to enforce 
any laws that prohibit the black market sale of um, marijuana. Yeah. And to put it another way, I mean, if you brew your own beer and you sell one to your buddy, you're, the cops probably aren't going to find out and come knocking down your door. And that's kind of how the black market for marijuana works. The difference is it's very easy to produce. Once the marijuana is legalized, the, 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 the latest I've heard was that you'll be legal to grow five plants personally. You can produce more weed than you would need, more marijuana than you would need yeah. with five plants. Um, so one of the problems they've had in states where they've legalized it is the the legal markets have not taken out the black markets nearly as quickly or as as uh, fast as they had anticipated. Yeah, and there's not going to be like a marijuana only black market, right? And mm-hmm. so you you can, I'd imagine now that I think about it, use that as a vehicle to try to root out black markets for stronger drugs because if you work your way up a chain, you're going to get to people who are dealing lots of cocaine or meth or heroin or or whatever. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Um, Yeah, I've also heard a compelling issue that there's not a test for it currently. Like if you, if a police officer pulls someone over and they suspect they're high above a certain tolerance there's not a breathalyzer for it or something yeah. like that so that can be a little complicated so they can test and you will test positive but if you if you use every day right and do you wake up you know and you didn't you haven't used for two days and you're driving you will test with lots of it in your system mm-hmm. even though you haven't used it in 48 or 72 hours yeah, it doesn't mean you're impaired doesn't at mean all. you're impaired um, yeah but it's still in your system so there's no way to test recent use mm-hmm yeah that seems like a legitimate hurdle there. Um, I mean, there's also the hurdle that the fact that it's still federally illegal, right? Yep. It's just in kind of a weird situation. <laughs> uh, I think it will be a larger point in the coming presidential election. Um, I'm not one to talk politics, because I, I don't know that much, but I know that many of, as you mentioned, the Democratic candidates tend to be more on board with it, Yeah, uh, have mentioned it as part of their running platform. Yeah. It... Um, One of the issues I hear about that with it being federally illegal has to do with finance, right? Yeah. You can't can't put your money in a bank, essentially. Yeah. (laughs) So I run a company called Potsitivities out of uh, the suburbs of Chicago, and all we do is we produce CBD lotions. So they're not – the FDA is not mad that, you know, you're doing this. It doesn't really get to your bloodstream. Um, It's just an effective topical. You know, we have a high-strength one that can be used for – areas with pain we can uh, we have several low strength ones that I use that help with like psoriasis or um, even healing scar tissue Um, and the biggest thing we run into is it's really hard to sell it because you know you need a merchant that is willing to do it and you need a bank that's willing to store it knowing that that's the thing you sell and it's really difficult we've had to go through several merchants who who, oh you can sell it on ours and then six months later they're like oh never mind no one's allowed to do this and so uh, Mm -hmm. it's it's certainly creating a lot of economic costs for those who want to participate in it. Yeah. I think it makes sense, though, for some states to go ahead and work their way through it. Mm-hmm. And when I was in Colorado visiting my in-laws, there's tons of dispensaries around there. Mm-hmm. And so it allows you to see a bit of the test cases of how things will play out. Maybe things you don't intend or don't recognize are happening that other, you know, federally can learn about. One of the local, I think he's a state senator. I'm real bad at state politics. I, I, know fe- I know federal pretty good. I know local really well, but state on weekend. State Senator Bill Brady, uh, if he's a, 
if he's a uh, representative, then people can just be mad at me. Bill Brady, he was at uh, a thing the other day talking about it, and he said he would prefer to see it legalized federally before more states do it. Um, yeah, I, I sort of get it, but on the whole, states are kind of supposed to be the trial grounds for different things so we can learn about it. So mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure that that's too compelling to me. Mm-hmm. But I think we're headed in that direction. Uh, it seems like it seems more and more states are going to do it. Yeah. Something that's surprised me that makes me a little bit nervous that I see coming out of California and Colorado is how many edibles and oils are being made with marijuana. Um, it... It scares me a little bit because of the density of it and the fact that somebody could unintentionally consume some. Um, I heard some stories of people who, like, ate a couple brownies and they, you know, it's like two days are messed up for them and stuff. Uh, So that that idea, especially as a father of, of, you know, young kids, if there's something laying around, they'd they'd eat a brownie, right? And that could make them pretty sick. So (laughs) that, you know, it's... It, especially if it gets, like, corporatized, where all of a sudden there's, like, the Coca-Cola of marijuana and it's getting, like, pushed on TV and, like, putting all kinds of stuff where you don't even really know if it's in there or not. If it becomes, like, soy, right, where soy is now in everything, mm-hmm. that that idea, even as somebody who myself is an advocate of it, of it being legal, that makes me nervous. And I wonder if we need more regulation on those types of products so to make sure that they're definitely clearly labeled and, mm-hmm. and things of that nature. Yeah, I think the alcohol industry is a good blueprint uh, in terms of regulations and restrictions. Uh, one of the interesting things that, that you point out is, you know, we're very, we've historically been very harsh on tobacco and marketing to kids. And it seems that that is the direction that a lot of marijuana product products are going. Um, and I think a lot will be solved when it's more culturally acceptable to converse about it. Uh, one of the things I talk about, and I think it's a big gray area in CBD, is the wide range of potencies. And um, I think edibles are a great kind of subset of the larger uh, you know, in marijuana industry where there are edibles that are so unbelievably potent that any person on the street that doesn't have an incredibly high tolerance, even people that might use every day, could take just one of them and be incapacitated for very long periods of time. Um, and I mean, I've, I, I haven't been to Colorado to, mm-hmm. to see these, but um, you know, if I said there's a thousand milligrams in here, would you know what that I means? I don't have any idea. Yeah, no. There's, no, there's no context, so um, but if I told you, you know, it's 100 proof or it's it's ever clear. It's 190 yes. proof. Yeah. Even like I know exactly how much alcohol is in that, and I should not drink it at all. Yes. So uh, I think a, a lot of it will change in the next five to ten years as the 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 cultural conversations about it become less taboo. Yeah. Um, well, my I should have said this at the front. I guess my experience comes from growing up in the Netherlands, where it was legal when I mm-hmm. was a kid, um, and. Uh, you know, it was normalized to a degree. I'd say people still did it to access in places where they shouldn't. Um, I'm, I'm not. I I think I would probably, I would discourage my kids from from doing it. Um, but I again, that to me, that's a point where I would like it to be legal because then we can have a conversation about it openly, and to you know, if they really do want to try it, then they can have a safer place to try it. They don't need to go in their school 
parking lot. Of course, they'd be too young, but you know, assume, <laughs> assume they're of the legal age, right? They can. Mm-hmm. They don't have to like go in a cornfield and yeah. and do it. They can. Um, Someday your kids will hear this and say, "Dad, but you said we could." Yeah, I said we could. <laughs> yeah, but I would like their. I would like to know that they're doing it. Same with alcohol. Like I would. I would like to know. Um, when they're doing it and where they're doing it and for them to not be worried to call me if things go sideways so that mm-hmm. I can come and help them out. Um, that seems to come with the whole idea of it being legal to me mm-hmm. as well. So, yeah, they, um, is there anything else that you've seen in the States or the countries where it's legal that we'd want to watch out for here? Uh, nothing, uh, nothing that I think you, you wouldn't anticipate naturally. Uh, you know, we've talked about a few of them: the identifying people who are intoxicated while they're driving, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, properly dosing, yeah. you know, marketing to kids. I'd say, How do yeah, you eliminate and enforce black market? Uh, and I've seen some pretty compelling stuff that consumption by kids can have some negative consequences. There, there are clinical studies that we know it affects brain development. Um, yeah, don't yeah. want to mess around with that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, cool. There's, I, I, I think uh, 21 or 18-year-old enforcement age is well-supported by science and good for kids and yeah. All right. good for society. Well, we'll take a little break real quick, and then we'll switch gears into uh, determinism and, and space topics and things. And oh, I, I don't fun talk, stuff. I don't, I don't think about space very much except when I talk to you, so I, uh, okay. I appreciate that window in. But uh, J- right, Jump in from... Here. From uh, you know, you never would have thought marijuana would be the boring topic of the podcast. Yeah, yeah <laughs> depends on who you are. It's true. Right there. So of course we want to thank our sponsors, Play Normal Esports and Normal Gadgets. Uh, Charlie, you ever been in here before? I have not. Yeah. What was your impression when you came in the door? Uh, it's super interesting, very welcoming, and fun atmosphere. Yeah. What stood out to you about the place for people who haven't seen it before? Uh, the community of uh, video games. You know, we tend to play alone in our house, and it's uh, a way to, to still do something you enjoy, but do it in a more social setting. Yeah, definitely. That's their their big goal here is to bring these kids together in the same physical space. It's a place where they can have things set up and play Fortnite and Apex and <laughs> things like that that you and I uh, don't have the fast twitch reflexes uh, no. anymore to do. <laughs> I saw you playing Super Smash. I mean, it's not Super Smash Brothers anymore. I it saw is. you playing Smash Brothers out no, there. Smash Brothers, yeah. Yeah. What did you What did you play on the most? Was it 64? Or I, the... Yeah, 64. When I was in college at Illinois State, I founded the Super Smash Brothers Club. And oh, it's nice. Now five or six years later and a hundred members strong. It's oh, okay. Still yeah. going there. Yeah. 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 Do you have a favorite character? Um, I like Jigglypuff. Really? Yeah. That guy's so hard to play. Yeah, she's the underdog. He's the underdog. She? He? I have I, no idea what it is. As, asexual. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, Jigglypuff is really frustrating to knock off a cliff because he just uh, keeps floating around. Mm-hmm. A little marshmallow. Yeah. yeah. I was uh, I was a Samus guy myself. Mm. I liked the like shooting missiles and people <laughs> with the screw attack. But um, So if you guys didn't follow anything we just said for the last minute, and would like to learn more about it, ask a, a kid near you, and then <laughs> ask them if they'd like to come over to Play Normal Esports to check things out here. All right, and we're back. Uh, big gear shift here. So I majored in philosophy, and the whole time I was studying this stuff, I found it absolutely fascinating. And then I, but the whole, every time I told people this, they're like, well, what are you going to do with it? And I was like, I think I'm just going to like think 
deep thoughts and have interesting conversations with people for my whole life. And so I've been uh, I've been very happy that I've gotten a chance to do that on occasion, and uh, such as in our conversations. So and I and I, I learn stuff every time too. So I know something you're really big on is the Fermi paradox, and I actually had to Google that when I when you first mentioned it. I hadn't run across that before. So how about you walk us through what that is, and we can see where the conversation goes from there. I'll uh, attempt to concisely describe what is uh, a very uh, difficult uh, and encompassing paradox. To put it simply, uh, the universe has been around for 13.8 billion years, you know, give or take a few hundred million. And when we look into space, uh, we find no signs of intelligent life like our own. Um, And statistically speaking, there's 100 billion stars, or not 100 billion, but billions of stars in our galaxy. We know that many, a high percentage of those have planets, um, and we know that there are virtually an uncountable number of galaxies in the universe, and um, even in the the 50 years that humans have been throwing metal into space, uh, you extend that to a million years, and we should have been able to go to every star in our galaxy. I mean, just extend it 10,000 years and we should be at the couple stars around us, but you extend it another hundred times as long as that, and we could be at most of the stars inside of our galaxy. And yet, there are no space probes in our galaxy. Uh, We haven't even found a single microscopic organism on a planet within our solar system. No radio waves that we're picking up. No, yep. And we know where to look, and we know what they they are, and uh, we can only expect that other life forms would be able to, to do that. He also... Um, that there's, you know, von Neumann was another famous philosopher, and he came up with a very simple device that we're probably pretty close to being able to create. And all it does is it scans its area for materials that are similar to its makeup. It goes to an asteroid, it mines the asteroid, it makes another one of itself, and then that thing launches off to the next star system. And all you need to do is create one of those devices, and they would colonize an entire an entire uh, solar, an entire galaxy, uh, and we we find nothing like that. We have not made such a thing, we have, right? Yeah, okay. uh, not yet, not yet. Okay, uh, but the technology is pretty close. You know, we know how to manufacture, we know how to mine things. Mm-hmm. We can travel through space. Okay, yeah, and those things would be everywhere yeah. at that point. Exactly, and, and we're talking in a hundred years, maybe we make our first one, or in two hundred years, we make our first one. And so to appreciate the time scale of a million years versus a hundred years, I mean, we would be able to do so much. Mm-hmm. And so, so the question is, why are we alone? Why are we alone? It's overwhelming. I stare at the sky. I, you know, I look at the Hubble deep space zooming in on just the most infinitesimal dot, and it's just full. It's just packed with so much stuff. How, how could we be alone? So the first one is, what are we? And that gets down to life. What is life? Mm-hmm. What makes us different than a rock? Or, you know, we reproduce. Well, stars explode and coalesce, and so they kind of reproduce. Um, so the big things that I think that what we're looking for when we say we're alone is we're looking for carbon-based, water-dependent life that it rises in complexity over time. You know, carbon's a very common molecule. It creates very complex chains, uh, you know, amino acids and proteins, essentially the foundation of everything that we know of as life. And we're all dependent on water. You know, water, it facilitates chemical reactions. 
And so all life that we know is carbon-based and water-dependent. And when you look at life over time, you know, long time, we see rises in complexity. And um, so one of the things that I strive to do to understand the Fermi paradox is to understand us. We are the only sample we have in the entire universe of what creating intelligent life um, takes. And so I spend quite a bit of time um, researching evolution and what we discover in our history and what makes us us. And all of this kind of results in, you know, um, a very strong understanding, or or maybe not understanding, but a, a question of, you know, free will and what is it do we have it and does there seem to be any scientific or historical justification that it exists so is this the same argument that i've seen expressed as a formula of like you take the total number of stars times like the mm-hmm. number of planets that could sustain life times mm-hmm. the chance that we i can't remember all the terms but yep. uh basically there's so many it's essentially the universe is essentially infinite and so no matter how small the likelihood that life would develop and how yeah. small the likelihood that life would become yeah. like intelligent or able to communicate outside or mm-hmm. um, it's still a non-zero yeah uh, like 0.0001% yeah there'd be thousands of them and there'd still be <laughs> yeah there'd still be at least more than one and there'd as far as we know one. there's just more than one yeah, of, we're, we're it there's just one I mean yeah, yeah. Um, so then we can talk about answers too if you want yeah yeah so then how does how does that then get you to questioning free will Mm. so i I, you have to understand one of the things to answer it is what are the confining factors that make us us maybe there are planets out there that are full of life complex multicellular life but they just never are as intelligent as we are or they're on a planet with so much gravity that they can't escape the surface gravity. They can't launch off the surface, so they're mm-hmm. just stuck. Um, or if they're all, if it's completely water, then yeah. they can't have like fire to yeah, get it, off the planet at it, all. Or, or they don't really use the stars to navigate, which is one of the things that uh, helped prescribe human intelligence was that pattern recognition of navigating at night. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, you need liquid water on the surface, which is kind of that Goldilocks zone. Uh, you need a planet with low enough gravity that you can get off of it. Uh, you need, you know, long-term sustainable rotation so that, you know, you don't turn into, like, a, a Venus where one side's really hot or, or Mercury, one side's very hot, one side's very cold. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're really lucky. Most of the Earth planets we've seen are super-Earths, very, very large, uh, you know, at least ten times the mass of Earth, so just huge gravity wells. We're also really lucky to have a very large moon. Mm-hmm. Uh, our moon's like the... I mean, our moon is bigger than Mercury. Oh, our I didn't moon know that. Is, it is bigger than a planet inside the solar system. Okay. I mean, we have a big moon, and it, it creates a whole bunch of benefits to, to Earth. Um, is only one moon important, too, for the predictability of the tides and things like that? Um, yes, so... Not one of the bigger ones, though. Yeah, you can do some... Yes. I mean, the moon is one of the things that predicts when mm-hmm. uh, tides will happen and, and their frequency. Uh, most, the, I mean, there's lots and lots of moons in our galaxy. There's no moons that have the same ratios of mass that the Earth's math, mass to lunar mass is. Mm-hmm. So, like, even the there are two moons, two or three moons that are larger than our moon that are out around Jupiter and Saturn. 
but Jupiter and Saturn are massive in comparison to those moons. So those moons have uh, don't have a very large effect on the planet itself. Yeah, and as I as I think about it, it's really got to be set in motion totally properly, right? Because if you've got such a large moon in relationship to the Earth, for it to be for the um, the rotations to be set up such that it's not pulling it off of pulling Earth off of its axis, mm-hmm. right? Like if it, so, so if what they happened were just was two relatively the same size th- there things. Were. There, oh, there were okay, and then they crashed into each other. Okay, and so I, I had to describe this once to my wife. You know, when the sun explodes, most of the mass ends up back in the center of the gra- of the center of the explosion. It goes mm-hmm. out, and then gravity pulls it back in. A small percentage of stuff manages to exist where it's orbiting at the right speed relative to its mass. And so when you look at the gradient of planets, they're made up of different composition relative to the density of the materials that creates those planets. So the planets that are further out are made of less dense material, and the things that are further in are made of more dense material. Okay. So what happens is when when those two planets collide, Earth and Terra is what they call the other planets, most of the mass from that collision ended up on Earth. And then the rest of it just happened to be moving in the right direction at the right speed that it coalesced into a second solid object. Oh. And then all the dust particles in between here and there from that collision either got sucked into the moon or sucked into Earth. Oh, okay. Most of it came back to Earth. Okay. So it's not so much that it had to be a perfect explosion. It's mm-hmm. just that happened to be where the mass was moving at the right speed that it didn't fall back into Earth or spin out of our orbit. Hmm. Okay. So I've like, never heard that before. Yeah, so like another way to put it is the vast majority of mass in our solar system is in the sun. But all of the mass in our solar system came from the last star. So the, the mass that isn't in the star just happens to be the mass at the right distance from the planet that was moving at the right speed. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So then, so is it like reflecting on the... So where you get down to, like, can we uh, ha- be free in some way to be making decisions that are independent of the physical forces and the histories around us? Is it reflecting on that topic then? Uh, the thing I think that really got, gets me there is, you know, when does when does something become life? Okay. And so, you know, you study the chemical properties that create life in the first place. You know, we're not 100% sure where life came from. Mm-hmm. You know, there's panspermia where it came from somewhere. But even in panspermia, there has to be genesis. Yeah, that means that it came from a different, some different planet or situation. Yeah, we right? don't think right. that the Big Bang happened and there just happened to be a few microbes floating around in this super hot, dense space. Mm-hmm. We, we know that the stuff that makes up microbes couldn't even exist then. Yeah. So at some point in time in the history of the universe, life was formed. Yep. And because we don't see it anywhere else, the best predictor we have for where it formed was probably on Earth. Okay. Yeah, makes sense. And so when you say, okay, so here we have this hot ball of rock and water, and life just genesis out of it, like genesis happens. Life just appears out of it. You would assume that whatever laws of physics were used to create that life, that that life is run exclusively on those physics. Mm-hmm. Um, that there is no scientific basis to make a leap that says that there is something non-physical that created that first life form. So if you, if you want to contend that, that's one thing. But if you, if you accept the fact that life, the genesis of life, was purely physical, when do you say that there is anything but pure physicality that creates all of 
uh, the descendants of Luca is what we call it, our last universal common ancestor, the mm-hmm. last living thing that gave rise to everything alive today. You know, why, you know, why are we any different than them when it comes to free will, our ability to choose? Yeah, because people typically attribute free will only to humans, right? I mean, I guess... And it's generally. It's generally. Would, we can scope that out. So, uh, like, to, know, some, some people say dogs do, you know. Sure. Because they're, they're human enough. Because they're bad dogs. <laughs> uh, bad dogs and good dogs. Um, but, you know, for the sake of trying to define that term then, so we would think of it that in a traditional... In this context, when we talk about whether there's free will or not, we're talking about a, a traditional view that it's something that humans can do because we have a... Uh, we're not completely material. We have a, a soul or a conscience or something that makes that that chooses to do one thing or another. And we could have chosen otherwise in that situation. If I, um, you know, I'm going to, I'm looking at my cup of coffee right now. Right now, I have experience of choosing whether I'm going to reach out and grab that or not. Right now, I'm choosing not to do that. But mm-hmm. I could have right then just reached out and grabbed it. And that's you know, a very trivial example of mm-hmm. free will, correct? So then, um, so you have this this idea that there is something about us that is like a, a choosing that's not beholden to the laws of physics. Um, and so what I hear you saying is, okay, when did that, mm-hmm. when, when was the moment when that wasn't there? Mm-hmm. And then, because there haven't always been people. So at some point there, you would say that not only, not only is there that step that we know happened from non-life to life, but then there's some sort of thing that would have to exist where you go from material life to, like, a, a spiritual mm-hmm. or cognition or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're skeptical of what what that really is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I can follow that. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting to me because I've... I've also heard free will challenge purely from a religious standpoint mm-hmm. in terms of God being omniscient. And I, I would say that God is one of the biggest arguments that free will does not exist. Yeah, we can run that one. Then. What's so that uh, it's, again, simply put, if a God is, is all-powerful and knows everything that has happened or ever will happen, you know, he, he knows the future, there must be one future, and so it must be determined. Yeah, and what you do, God must already know. Um, and so, if there's a God that exists outside of time, how can you have free will if there's only one decision you ever make, and mm-hmm. God knows that decision? Yeah, I will. You want to give the yeah. common response? Um, the soft determinism response. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've heard some responses to me that fail pretty pretty quickly and uh, tragically. One of them is. Again, going to the scientific aspect where people were like, well, we see that, like, wow, these kids are really having fun here. There There tends to be parties going on on Sundays, so I'm glad to see the business going well. Mm -hmm. Um, One that comes from the scientific side that always kind of makes me just chuckle is the argument for randomness to say, oh, well, we see... Quantum variation. Yep. So we see in quantum variation that there's non-deterministic and probabilistic things happening, so not everything is determined. And I'm like... Uh, that's not free will, though. Like, that's even worse because now you're living <laughs> in this random universe where, like, anything can happen at any time. And um, I, how in the world quantum flux could be, like, consolidated together to, like, be, again, the experience of choice that, that I have. Um, so I guess it's like you know, your, your mind is, like, controlling the quantum realm or, realm or something, but it's very... 
very unsatisfying to me. I don't think that's <laughs> what people really want to have. Um, you know, and I guess I've heard people say like maybe there's like branching universes, and so God knows like to go, go to the religious one. God knows like where all the universes are branching off, but at least in the Christian tradition, the Bible's supposed to explain. You know, it explains like Revelation at the end how everything ends, and it explains like the condition of man. And so, if you did have these infinite number of branching universes every time anyone made any sort of trivial choice about whether to grab a cup or not. The idea that there would still be like one book or one story that would persist over all infinite of those possibilities. Again, I don't really think that that's what people are talking about when they're talking about like God being omnipotent. Uh, So I I have heard people just give up on that facet of God. Like I had a Jewish (laughs) friend who was just like, well, we don't think God's omnipotent or something like that. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, well, I guess you can start to chip away at at what God is, but limiting the powers of, of, a, of a deity is uh, sort of presumptuous as well, too. So I think those kind of all fall flat. Am I missing any, like, easy ones to knock down? <laughs> uh, probably probably not easy. Uh, I, I would say another common misconception is that, uh, you know, there's a multiverse that each kind of tier, you know, not necessarily religious-related, but that mm-hmm. each decision you make creates a multi, you know, a different timeline. But I, I think that's too small a scope. I think if you're going to talk about a multiverse, but first, generally the multiverse, when we speak about it, are universes with different cosmological constants, and we just happen to live in the universe, the one verse that happens to be that our cosmological constants result in life. Yeah. So that's one version of the multiverse. It's generally, I think, what physicists talk about when they talk about other other universes. Mm-hmm. Um but another one is that, you know, every decision we make. But I think that's also confining. I think the multiverse from that standpoint would be every quantum variation. So if you talk about a subatomic particle appearing in its probability space, it would appear at every different prob- probability space, and every single one of those would create a different universe. So it's not that you're willing your path through these multiverses. You just happen to exist in one of those branches. Yeah. The, like... You know, the, the science fiction show where I'm a big science fiction fan. I like a good time travel episode more than the next guy. But I always think it's interesting that we attribute, like, this super this superpower to every person now all of a sudden where, like, uh, any decision that you make, you're, like, creating alternate realities by your mind. And it, it does seem to get a little spooky. Um, and, uh, but... That being said, uh, I did enjoy The Last Avengers tremendously. So. <laughs> that one was good. Except um, they said, you know, we have to put everything back, and then they clearly killed someone they brought from the past, so... Yeah, and then Loki got away. And, yeah, anyway, no, spoilers. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, those those don't seem to be very convincing to me, and I think they also misunderstand the, the term, like you said, of the multiverse. To me, that's more of a argument... Uh, it's a little harder to grasp, but when people say that God has to exist because things work so well here, like the, the cosmological forces are so in a line and like how astronomically rare that would be for that to happen, hence something had to make it. And it, to me, it's dissatisfying because I just say like, well, if we were in one of the universes where that didn't happen, then we wouldn't be reflecting on how rare it is. We just wouldn't be here to reflect on it at all. So it's a 
like a survivor fallacy, I guess, on that. So, I think it's a valid conclusion or response to the Fermi paradox. So, yeah, know, there is something special that we're unaware of. Yeah, I wouldn't say I buy into that, but that's a more convincing argument. I, if you accept that free will doesn't exist, mm-hmm. but that our existence is intentional and unique, I, I don't think that justifies necessarily what common religion. Yeah, uh, you know, so you know. He said this at this point in time and decreed these laws, but to submit that there may be something greater than something that lives outside of our universe that understands existence. Yeah, I, I would say that is yeah. So let's plausible. take a, let's take a um, before we delve into free will anymore because there is uh, basically where I go with it is to redefine what we mean by free will, which mm-hmm. is kind of cheating too, but that gets mm-hmm. you at least something you want out of it. Uh, but before we do that. Talk about like solutions to the Fermi paradox. Mm-hmm. So there is one I think you just mentioned where there could be a supernatural force of some kind that mm-hmm. we that exists outside of our um, outside of our universe mm-hmm. that has you know created life and put it there. Mm-hmm. Um, we can call that thing God if we want, but then that doesn't all of a sudden mean that the Quran or the Bible is true, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you could say like there is a creator of mm-hmm. some kind. That's nothing. You know, logically inconsistent about that, I guess. The Earth could be flat. If it's it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> By the way, if the anyone, Earth is not flat, uh, please. If anyone is interested in and in learning more about flat Earthers, if uh, there's a Netflix special called Behind the Curve, is absolutely fascinating. Um, it's more like about the psychology of why people are drawn into the flat Earth movement. But if you haven't seen that, I think you would find it fascinating. Um, I think they're very fair. To the flat Earth supporters, it's not like ridiculing them, but it is sort of like delving into like what is going on in that culture. Mm-hmm. I like to, I'm big on like trying to understand where people are coming from, mm-hmm. um, and I think mostly it's, uh, yeah, I think the psychology and the social aspects of it, I think, explain a lot of why people have flashed onto it, um, and also it's just like not important to us. Uh, I, we're not navigating across the globe by a boat anymore using geometry and uh, astrophysics to, sorry, um, astrology, Mm -hmm. astronomy, astrology, astronomy, astronomy. Yeah. (laughs) We're not, we're not like navigating anymore. And so like, I know a really good way to test if the earth is flat or if it's round, like you have one person getting a boat and navigate based on the assumption that there is flat. Another person getting a boat and navigate based on whether it's round. They try to end up the same place. The one that ends up there is the right one. This used to be the issue in confronting with people, and the wrong people would, you know, die in the ocean. But we don't have <laughs> such we don't have such pressures anymore. We just use a GPS. Um, but anyway, digress. So how else uh, how else can you solve the the issue here, uh, the Fermi paradox? That uh, the universe is um, um, not an illusion, but uh, a simulation. Simulation theory. Oh, we're in a computer. Yeah. Okay. Um, and there's some interesting mathematics that we've resolved around black holes that would say that all of the information contained in a three-dimensional space is confined by the surface area of that of the two-dimensional the two-dimensional surface area around it okay. so to put it another way you know we could be a, a projection inwards of uh, a two-dimensional space surrounding us that we're just living out someone else's simulation mm-hmm. um, but even in simulation theory you could still have more than one life form uh, so I think the the most convincing the, the two other ones one that were first I would, sorry I just say with yeah. that one in a way it kind of 
Does it kind of collapse into the first one, though? It's like if we're in a simulation, then there's something outside running the simulation. There's something supernatural that's creating the conditions, and yep. that's why life is so rare. Yep. So, but, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, the next one is that we're first. I think this one's... And the, this one and the next one, I guess you can claim, are, are the same. Um, well, there, and then there's a third one that I think is probably the most practical. But we're first. It just happens that this was the first place that are, are you know, it's really, excuse me, really unlikely. Mm-hmm. It's really unlikely that <laughs> we could, uh, you know, life forms, that there are a whole bunch of confining factors and just happens that no other life in the entire galaxy got to our sophistication level. Um, another one is that we kill ourselves. It's totally practical. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. If we, even if we killed ourselves, like, we've, we've already sent a whole bunch of radio waves out into space and a whole bunch of probes. And so, like, something, like, we've, we've already, like, sent detectable things out into the universe. And mm-hmm. so it stands to reason that any world or life that has the ability to destroy itself would also have the ability to send stuff into space, at least transmissions, and we could pick them up. I don't know. We've been throwing things into space for 50 years. Mm-hmm. We, I guess we've had radio waves that went into space a little longer, but that is such a tiny period of time. Yeah. If we all died tomorrow, another human civilization, the next star rover wouldn't detect what we've released so far. Oh, okay. okay. Our probes, we've released, what, two probes? That Three now. Uh, that have gotten outside of our solar system. Mm-hmm. That's not very many. Yeah. Those okay. will float around for billions of years and probably never hit anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, our, our fingerprint is small right now. Okay. Yeah, um, it need to be something like that self-replicating probe that you yeah. talked about yeah. in order that for them to be It just continues to grow in, in yeah. recent strength. Another one is the radio waves we've sent so far get weaker the further you are away. So it's probably not detectable past a certain distance. Mm-hmm. Okay. And there's only maybe a couple hundred stars in that distance. Okay. And we'd probably be kind of embarrassed if that's what we were known by, too. So that's just our, the one, the just, one pulse in the Just our, our, radio, our radio waves where they pick up all of our primetime television for about <laughs> 10 years. And <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's not really a, a convincing way out of it, though, huh? Well, that's I think the, the most paradox. convincing is that we just haven't been a very, around very long. And that um, we aren't—we don't know what to look for yet. Uh, you know, throwing stuff into space for 50 years, which is again my favorite phrase mm-hmm. to describe our our space. And yeah. We we have not. Was there someone the who surface. coined that, or was no? That, I just yeah. I probably heard it somewhere. I like it. Know. Throwing stuff out there. Yeah, you know, we're just so we're infants. We've only touched another the surface of something ourselves recently mm-hmm. and we haven't even done it very much uh, uh, so I, I would say give us a thousand years you know we're confined by the speed of light so even at 50 years all the stuff that have been released have only hit a couple stars around us that are within 50 light years right so we, we want to really create something where our existence you know some alien with really sensitive instruments can pick up some of the signals we've released mm-hmm. and even be aware of us and even then it'll take however far they are away at light speed to send any type of signal back at us that would be discernible. So I think the answer is that it's out there um, and we haven't detected it uh, or that intelligent life is really rare. My guess is that given 
the the resilience uh, of life on Earth and the the, the evolutionary the evolutionary history. Mm-hmm. That if you find any salty ocean, you'll find some form of life as long as it's geologically active. Salty water. You need warmth in order for it to remain in liquid form. Mm-hmm. Most planets in their formation, any celestial body in its formation, has an active core, so it's releasing hot, um, heavy metals into liquid water, and that's kind of how we think life is formed, you know, just ocean vents at the bottom, which would be surprisingly common. Yeah. Um, and when you say, oh, we haven't found any in our solar system, I would say, we have never looked inside water anywhere but Earth. We've, yeah. we've looked at the dusty inch or two inches on top of Mars' surface and the dusty couple inches on the top of Moon's surface. But that's pretty much the extent of uh, our search for life. Um, we haven't put a microscope inside Enceladus's liquid ocean and said, are there microbes here? Mm-hmm. So my guess is we'll find microbial life within our solar system. I was fascinated when I saw the documentary. It's part of the Planet Earth documentary, but it had a bunch of stuff about under the ocean and like the wide variety of life that exists in water compared to what exists on land mm-hmm. um, you know you got you got stuff that lives like in the dirt and, and insects you know that have multiple legs um, but you know pretty much all your stuff that's like of any size on the surface of the planet you got you know four limbs and a head and two eyes and <laughs> so I got a nose and a mouth and like all, the, all the fish descendants yeah yeah there's like we're, we're we're strikingly common. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, sorry, strikingly the same. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually see it when I read my kids' Dr. Seuss books because Dr. Seuss has all these really crazy drawings. But even his like you know amazing imagination, almost everything in there is a uh, has some usually four limbs, an even number of limbs, and then you know like a, a head and a body. That's about as diverse as you can get. But then mm-hmm. you go into water, and it, it's like it, so the narrator in the documentary said it's like nature just tried one of everything out down here. <laughs> and so the idea that none of that variety could work on any other planet, like if you're going to, you may not find stuff on land, but it, it strikes me as very plausible that we'd find stuff swimming around mm-hmm. in the ocean. Um, yeah, I think if it exists, it exists. I think the, the question is, is it the right condition for Genesis? the first life, mm-hmm. the first microbe, the first strand of RNA that replicates, that we don't know. Yeah. I mean, we drop life anywhere, and we're like, oh, somehow it found a way to have ancestors that survived, you know. Yeah. Cool. Um, we got about 10 more minutes here, okay. so let's talk about um, compatibilism then. And uh, I... I probably shouldn't mention this because I don't know if I'll present it properly, but I actually did a um, like an honors thesis on compatibilism, but that was going on 20 years ago, so I, I did not go find my old paper to brush up on it. But I think I remember the basic idea, which is sort of how I... I think I've internalized this and how just I cope with life. Um, there is an experience that we have of making a choice. I described it earlier, whether to pick my coffee up or not. Like, we do have that experience. And we, we also have an experience of understanding when something is like a, a moral choice that someone makes, when it's the choice that they have control over, and when there's a choice that they can't. So you can think of an example. Like, let's say someone's driving in their car, a kid darts out in front of them, there's no way they could stop, and they hit the child, and we don't consider them to be guilty of murder. 
but perhaps if they were, um, especially if they were like, hey, there's a kid in the road, but I don't care. I'm going to accelerate and hit them. That's definitely a problem. Or even if it's like they're looking down at their phone and distracted or, or doing something that they shouldn't be doing while they're driving. If they're driving drunk, then we hold them to be culpable because they've made it. We perceive them as making a choice that resulted in this negative thing happening. And so there does seem to be like a distinction that most people agree on with this. And then also there's, uh, there seems to be a utility in that distinction. If you chalk everything up to say like, well, no one has free will anyway, and everything's determined and that child was going to die. And I don't, you know, the, the, the causal results of how that happened, you know, don't really affect me. You're, you're like losing something that we feel very deeply that like moral responsibility does exist in the world and there's a role for identifying that. And so then the game kind of becomes like trying to carve out what that is. You know, philosophers argue about it from their ivory tower about what that entails. And um, so that essentially amounts to reframing um, free will and to be kind of like your ability to act according to your volition instead of having having forces outside of your, your, your lotus of control or outside of your intention dictating what happens. So, um, so how, do, how do you react to people run that kind of argument? Do you think I portrayed it fairly? Yeah, absolutely. I I think the one of the questions too. There's no free will, and is you know how do you hold anyone accountable if there is no such thing as free will? Um, and so I I think that um, free will does not have to exist for justice to be necessary, for accountability, uh, for punishment. Uh, some of the things I think about are you know um, ha- are your past actions a predictor of your future ones. So if you, if it's, you know, some kid runs in front of the street and you don't see him and they're below the corner of your car and they dive out between two cars, well, I would say that doesn't indicate that you're going to kill another kid. I, I, you know, that was something of which um, the choices that you make in the future will not necessarily increase the likeliness that that happens. However, if you're very intoxicated and you hit and kill a kid, that you are probably more likely than someone who has never hit a kid drunk to hit a kid drunk again. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think, you know, thinking about how do we discourage people from making decisions that we, we deem as not good for society or immoral? Um, how do we discourage other people from doing those things? You know, one of the examples I like to give is the biggest deterrent to murder is catching murderers. Okay. <laughs> You know, murder rates go down as we get better at identifying who commits it. Mm-hmm. Um, the same thing with bar fights. Bar fights went down when you got sued for hurting someone else. Okay. Uh, so there I was think- a great John Mulaney. Do you know who he is? He's a yeah. comedian. Yeah. You see his bit he did on like how bad detectives were at solving crimes prior to DNA. <laughs> it's so great. He's like, what were these guys even doing back then? You know, you find a pile of, like we found a pile of the killer's blood and you're like, Ugh, gross, clean that up. <laughs> I've got a hunch. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I think DNA probably really, really discourages people from uh, committing crimes. You know, you should be able to get away with all kinds of stuff so, mm-hmm. as an example to mm-hmm. what you talked about. Yeah. Um, so I think that there, there's, you know, there's reason to remove people from society uh, that are constant, constantly, uh, continually committing crimes of which are, are bad and we don't think that they'll stop. 
Um, I think they're punishing people for crimes to discourage other people from doing them is a reasonable reason for justice. Uh, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't advocate that we have the an, an infallible justice system. Uh, I think there's lots of ways that we can improve, and I think understanding that people don't have free will would probably improve our justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, when I, people I think, think. Go ahead. And I'll take it one step further. I think it's humbling to think of all of us as just tiny machines. You know, we all have inputs and outputs and goals that we want. Uh, my favorite phrase when talking about life is that we're confined to our biology. And, you know, what I want in my life, I will, I won't, I can't change it. I can't decide I don't want it. I, you know, I want to be happy. And my four billion or, you know, three billion years of evolution have dictated a very specific set of things that make me happy. You know, I care about the people around me because in evolution, we grew up in groups and I need the people around yeah. me. And, you know, I, I feel this deep, because of the Fermi paradox, I feel this deep-seated connection to life and yeah. wanting it to proliferate. So I want to save got, the you, rainforests <laughs> and, and, and you know help teach people important and valuable lessons so that they can be better agents of life in, in the world that yeah. we live in. You and got a I child think, on the way too, right? I mean, yeah, my wife's—that's the ultimate, the ultimate goal. You know, for billions of years, every parent has had children, and I'm not going to end that. That would be just a disservice to you know my billions of ans- my years of ancestors that have all reproduced and so I know that I want to do it deeply and, and you know there's sacrifice but it will be absolutely satisfying and on my deathbed I will feel that I had a life well lived because I, I understood my biology and what I, I wanted. I didn't believe that there was some way I could will myself out of wanting what I want. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah you it definitely like helps view justice as a like how would I put it? You're, you're trying to use justice and punishment and forgiveness in a way that's going to maximize the benefits of society. So you really get mm-hmm. this consequentialist view of of morality and justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and on the opposite side of coin, when the more you believe in free will, I think the more that people start to get into the like writing of a cosmic injustice type view mm-hmm. where it's like if they you know it's eye for an eye type thing well they killed someone so they deserve to die in order to equalize that out mm-hmm. there's been something thrown off in the cosmic scales and you need to write it by fitting punishment for the person and then like punishment almost becomes like the goal of the activity and your goal of the activity should be if we punish this in this way what would the result be will it deter other people from doing it if yes, you know, mm-hmm. then sure, let's try. If we're finding like, um, you know, like capital punishment is always one you throw out. I don't. I haven't seen recent studies. I look, haven't looked at it for over a decade, but I, I find it very convincing. If people can show me here are places with capital punishment, here are places without capital punishment. Let's compare the incidence of the crimes that would warrant capital punishments in these places. And if they're the same, then you're, you're not. It's not a deterrent, right? You're just mm-hmm. you're just killing more people at that point, mm-hmm. which is making the problem of people dying worse. You know, mm-hmm. um, same with like guns and abortion, and like you should look at the consequences of the policies you have in place to see if they're really minimizing and maximizing the things that you care about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it it uh, it's a much more constructive approach, I think, personally, to those types of questions. Mm-hmm. 
another yeah. thing is that it can feel like you lose power sometimes. So I don't have free will, so you know, there's some things I can't do. But what I've found is it's extremely empowering because I realize there's so much I can do if I understand people and their motives and their wants and who they are. I, again, I can't stress this enough. I mean, the study of evolution has informed who I am, both with what I want and how I interact with people deeply, mm-hmm. because it, it defines what we are. And so I, I have expanded my sphere of influence greatly um, and been able to achieve things I would have never imagined because I just understand that we are simple creatures. You know, we're just we're things that have inputs and outputs and structure. And the more you understand that, the more you can influence the world around you and the better you can achieve your goals. And my goals are to make the world a better place, you know, to make the people around me happier. Uh, you know, I, to put it simply, I just want to leave people better than I found them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and go all the way back to what we talked about first in your, you know, how do you manage change? How do you bring about the change you want to see in yourself when you view yourself as a... A system that was developed by an evolutionary process, then you can understand how best to further influence that in the direction that you want to go. So it's not like you just consider yourself to be. Um, there's there still is like again, wh- wh- how the mechanics are. Our language tends itself towards something where you you believe. Intent. Yeah, but you we can influence. <laughs> we can influence ourselves and. Mm-hmm. To, to pursue a course that we find more desirable. Mm-hmm. And even if that's the course we were going to go down anyway, we still have that, that experience, and that is a thing that is important in life, is to have that sort of mental process going on. Uh, you know, the awareness of lack of free will is still an input. So, you know, I think an interesting question is always, you know, how does teaching someone they don't have free will change their actions. Mm-hmm. And also, I, I really like that you brought that full circle. I did a TED Talk and change. I believe you should live your life with ultimate responsibility. I don't think we, I don't think it's even possible for us not to feel like we have free will because we are confined to our biology and our biology says you have choice. So even though I, I firmly believe there is no such thing as free will, I live my life as if I have total responsibility for all my actions. And I believe that people can change and should change. And I try to figure out what are the words and the incentives that I can help inform other people so that they decide to change, so that their lack of free will directs them in, in a way that betters their life. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, I, it, uh, I think that's what's so fascinating about so many conversations with people on these types of topics is you, you start from different places like I could have started this, you know, conversation with somebody who, like, has very deep religious convictions and really, really believes in uh, dualism. That the fact that there's a spirit that's inside of them that has a, you know, a, a goal to act in the world that they're divinely inspired and they, they get to largely the same point though. Like if they are really thinking through their proper role in the world and what like, what does it mean to be a person that lives lives well for themselves, lives well for their family, lives well for their community. Like, there's so much overlap between how people get to those things and those principles. And I just, I find it absolutely fascinating to hear how people's journeys come to these things and uh, where they are the same and where they are different. So, uh, so thanks for sharing that. So in our, in our last minutes here, uh, this is sort of just to make sure that this, uh, 
this, this podcast fits in with, uh, you know, about blooming to normal focused. I, uh, I'm curious to hear as, uh, how long have you been here? You went to ISU? Yeah. <clears throat> I went to ISU for five years and I worked uh, for State Farm for five years. So for five years. Okay. Ten years. The third yeah. of my whole life I lived in Bloomington. Okay. Yeah. So you're, so you're ten years here. Um, what are some of the things that you, uh, that, that you enjoyed about Bloomington Normal in your time? Uh, I love the college. I think uh, Illinois State's a, a, a good university. It's, it, it tends to do right by its students. I, I love my actual science program I went to. Uh, you know, I spent a lot of time mentoring students there and working with the faculty. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I like that it's, it's a college town and there's a lot of focus on development. And you know, there's a lot of fun things to do because you know, the college, you know, economics, college students demand fun things. So businesses will have fun things to do. So I, I enjoyed that, especially as someone who is young um, after, after graduating college. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also think, you know, it's very interesting transitioning from State Farm, or Illinois State to State Farm. Because at Illinois State, you're in normal you know, like college. This is a college town. And look at all these things that are for college students. And then you finally realize that veterans is just State Farm's side of town. And there's <laughs> all of these things that State, you know, State Farm is this long tradition and foundation. And mm-hmm. so... Where's your house? Uh, Where was your house? It was on the uh, west side of Bloomington over by Miller Park. Okay. All right. Um the older side of town, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of history there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got to live in a whole bunch of st- uh, places in town. Uh, I got to to see, you know, Bloomington is a surprisingly. Um, it, it it has a lot of different aspects to it. You know, I think depending on where you are, you'll see totally different people doing totally different things. And uh, it, the ten years felt quick but also like I experienced and learned so much all in the same place yeah it's a big formative period of your life yeah yeah and uh, met my wife and she got into the doctorate in nursing practice program at University of Wisconsin-Madison and so uh, I get to follow the greatest person I've ever met or ever known to to help her achieve her dreams and Mm -hmm. It's, it's exciting. You still doing insurance up there? I am. I am still an actuary, still working in life insurance. Okay. Uh, Northwestern Mutual. I won't. I won't say it's the best insurance company, but uh, it's a pretty good one. And I'm yeah. Pretty pleased. I went to um, Milwaukee about ten years ago, and I was. We were kind of walking around. I turned a corner and saw Northwestern Mutual, and I was like, "Huh? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I bet they hire actuaries. I I might like to live here one day. So yeah. I don't fault you at all. That's a really cool city. Mm-hmm. Um, I we did like a walking like food brewery tour. That was really really fun. Cheese and beer, man. Cheese and beer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's gonna be a bit bigger than here. Yeah, the great craft beer scene. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate that I get that there and here. Yeah, good. Um, anything that you're really looking forward to leaving town? Something that never really set right with you here? Um, there's too many chain restaurants. <laughs> 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 you know, uh, you know, uh, Anjou and uh, you know the Night Shop and. Uh, was the Ancho and Agave. Yeah. yeah you know, yeah. you guys have got some cool ones, but, you know, once every three months is pretty slow for a new restaurant. And after, like, three years, some of the old ones tend to kind of phase out. And, uh, so, yeah, a li- little better food scene. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Um, weather will probably be pretty comparable up there, yeah. huh? A little colder, yeah. maybe. but Probably more snow. Yeah, yeah, well, good. Well, uh, best of luck on your your travel up there um i was sad to see you go but really glad to hear about 
with the opportunities for your wife. And um, when's your when's your due date? Two months Two from months. tomorrow. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Have a Wisconsin baby. Yeah. 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 She'll <laughs> she'll be a Wisconsinite. Yeah. My wife's a badger. Just getting all the good stuff. Very cool. <laughs> all right. We'll be sure to let me know if you're going to be in town. We can right, we'll go do. grab a beer somewhere. Okay. Well, right. maybe. Uh, you know any good breweries? <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of that, I do want to thank our sponsors, Little Beaver Brewery. Go check them out. They're down by the Big Gold's Gym. I hear some rumors that they're looking at expanding and building out their tap room even more, increasing their food offerings. So be sure to keep them in mind for your, your beer and entertainment needs. It's a great place to hang out. And also thank you to Play Normal Esports and Normal Gadgets. Be sure to stop by here on El Dorado Road. If you've got a broken iPad or a computer or anything electronic, they can take a look at it and fix it for a lot cheaper than buying a new one. <laughs> and also Play Normal Esports is teaming up with Cooksville Juan Martial Arts Studio and the Open Source Classroom Makerspace for a summer camp for kids. They recently reduced their price to $300 plus a $50 material fee. And they have three different sessions that they're doing this summer. The first one starts on June 10th. So go ahead and check that out on uh, osc3d.com. That's open source classroom3d.com slash summer camps. Or you can look on Play Normal Esports site too to check out if that's something that would be a good fit for your kid. And I think we're done. Uh, on the way out, I want to thank our sponsors. Uh, oops. Play Normal Esports, Cook, Sue, Juan. Um, ooh, geez, what kind of martial arts are they? Just says martial arts. Okay.